Hello, and welcome back to the Career Champions Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Newhauser, and today I have the pleasure of co-hosting with two of my colleagues, Daniela and Sally. Hello, everybody. I'm Daniela, and I'm the graduate intern for CDPI. It's a pleasure to be co-hosting cast today. My name is Sally Seitreff, and I sit on the CDPI Board of Directors as the Director of Member Services. Well, welcome, dearest co-hosts. Today, we are continuing part two of our conversation with Indiana Commissioner for Higher Education, Teresa Lovers. As a quick reintroduction, Teresa Lovers was appointed in 2009 to serve as Commissioner for Indiana's Commission for Higher Education. She is currently the nation's longest-serving state higher education executive officer. As Commissioner, Lovers works to increase college completion, ensure academic quality and student learning, and align post-secondary credentials with meaningful careers. She partners with policymakers and higher education leaders to develop and implement the state's higher education strategic plans, including the Commission's recently adopted fourth plan, Reaching Higher in a State of Change. Additionally, Lover serves as the chair of the Governor's Workforce Cabinet, and prior to joining the Commission, she was a state senator for 17 years, leading on education and economic development issues as chair of the Senate Education and Career Development Committee. She will be retiring from her role as commissioner in March 2022 at the end of the legislative session. So without further ado, I'm going to let Daniela keep our conversation moving. As we've been talking, Commissioner Lovers, about the affordability issue, I'm curious if you can speak a little bit about, you know, how that's all related to diversity and inclusion measures and um, how you can see, kind of see that playing into how we can break down the silos between institutions and create these new cohorts of learning? Well, first of all, I mean, let's celebrate the good news, which is, you know, we distribute $400 million a year out of this office, uh, of which about $350 million of that is need-based funding. So, you know, the legislature and policymakers have acknowledged the importance of financial aid. We have increasingly in Indiana referred to this terminology as earned benefit. So not only is the money provided, but, but students are earning that based on meeting certain expectations. And those expectations are the ones that we know are more likely to make them successful. And so I think that's a really important part of this as well. Um, you know, we've actually seen, you, you can't talk about affordability and not talk about tuition. Uh, you know, we've seen the lowest increases in tuition in the last you know, 10 years in Indiana. And in 2009, which was my first year as commissioner, we were given the statutory charge to set non-binding targets for tuition and mandatory fees. And I don't attribute that strictly to what the commission has done. But if you look from 2009 to today and you look at the decline in the rates, the increases in tuition, uh, it's a compelling message to say that, you know, we're sort of all in this together to look at tuition. It's, it's interesting now, and this is a discussion probably for another day, but you know, you have to look at this. And so how much does the state appropriate toward uh, the operating budgets for our institutions? And then you know, if that doesn't stay, keep at pace, is there a tendency, which there was in the past, to raise tuition to compensate for the fact that you weren't getting as much money in state aid? I would offer a counterintuitive argument, which is, you may actually, if you sustain tuition, increase your enrollments. So, uh, you know, I understand that there are fixed costs that you have to cover. Now we're going to have the challenge of inflation, which is very real right now as well. So I, there are true costs. But I do think that rushing to raise tuition may, in fact, 
decreased enrollment, which then is a counter secular, it, it, it's, it's a big problem. So, you know, we need to have a healthy discussion about what is the state's commitment to higher ed, you know, both in terms of operating budgets and financial aid. How do the institutions look at bend their cost curve and hold their tuition at sustained levels as best they can? And those are all going to be a part of those discussions going forward. And I know you mentioned discussions. I know that your staff has been doing uh, a lot of listening tours, I would call them, with focus groups and really hearing from students or individuals that may be skeptical about going to, to college or, or what the reason for is going to college and what they appreciate appreciate about higher education. So I just do want to uh, applaud your your team uh, for, for doing that because it, that's tough work and um, going on those listening tours and hearing the, the truth and addressed it, addressing those and adjusting to, to the needs um, is, is crucial during this time. So I think your, your, your team is doing a fantastic job uh, with that as well. Well, we're trying to get underneath this discussion of, you know, the irony and that, you know, education beyond high school is more important than ever and this growing skepticism about its value and what, where is that coming from? And, um, you know, we I mentioned already the work that we did with Gallup to look at, you know, what people value. And then now we're engaged with Fox Global to actually get underneath that and, and talk to people, both those who are going on to higher education and those who are not and what they value, not surprisingly, back to our discussion before, and whether, as I've often said, whether this is reality or perception, the truth is that for many of them, they still say that affordability is the number one reason. So we've got to get the message out there that we will make it affordable for you to go to higher education, whether it's signing up to be a 21st century scholar. And even if you don't do that, we still, through the Frank Bannon scholarships, provide significant financial aid. So you have this whole issue of affordability, which I think we have ways to discuss. This issue of you know, career relevance, which we're working on to make sure that um, students or people, whether it's you know, high school students or returning adults, see this relationship between what they're learning and what they will do. You know, we've also, we've sort of discovered that in some markets, and, and this may be especially true, not exclusively, but with men and especially in rural America, there's this sort of thing that we've identified as rugged individualism. You know, don't you tell me what to do. I know what's best for me. And and I get that. I mean, they they don't always trust the messengers of people who are telling them this. So we need to find better messengers. And often it's not higher ed because they think higher ed's trying to get their money. It's not government like us because they were too far removed from them. It may be, you know, their counselor someone at their church, a faith-based institution, a community leader, an employer, somebody who directs them, and then they will go to the institution or come to us to find out what they can do. So we need better messengers to figure out how to do that as well. So, um, you know, we have sort of, a, and so now we're trying to, you know, refine that message to figure out what is the message that resonates with people that, that says, you know, I'm doing this because this is in my best interest to do this, and it is going to provide me opportunities for career advancement or career options or choices. So if, in fact, it is individualism, how do you get the best opportunity to control your future? Well, it's by being prepared and you actually have a chance to control your future. And education does that better than anything else. So we're working on refining our message and figuring out the best messengers, working with employers and community leaders, um, all of those things uh, we hope will convince more Hoosiers that higher education is for them. 
We've been talking a bit about the skepticism that some students are having towards college or their families. And so something that that shows up in a lot of our conversations are the, the silos between institutions, between the community college, between the state school, between the private institutions that you've mentioned. How much do you think these silos are contributing to that skepticism? And do you do you see ways that that we can tear down those silos to see it as more of a collaborative nature, graduating our students and keeping them in the state? Well, let me do, start where I usually try to start, which is a ho hopeful part. I think we're doing better than we used to. Uh, I mean, I think we've made significant improvements in the ways that our institutions um, work together and collaborate. The challenge right now is, as enrollments decline, you know, they're all going to be going after students. And so, um, I mean, I get that. I mean, it's their, you know, the financial model doesn't work if you don't have, if you continue to see enrollment declines. So I think differentiating their, the message and the offer, I mean, it's one thing, you know, to go to um, Purdue for an engineering degree. You know, Indiana State has really identified first generation um, 21st century scholars as one of their markets. I mean, I could go through each of the institutions and, and tell you how they are looking to uh, either collaborate with their partner institutions. I mean, if you look at teacher prep programs, you'll see things between Ivy Tech in IUPUI and Marion. I mean, that's a, a whole teacher preparation kind of program they're working on together. You see students who will, you know, you know, get a more some more of their credits, you know, online, and then how do we accept those? You know, you're look, we're looking at more students getting what we call the Indiana College Core, which is you can get 30 credits, general education credits in high school or in college, and they transfer seamlessly. And it could come at, you know, at a cost of no more than $750 if you're getting those in high school. It gives you a jump start. You're more likely, one might say, well, then, you know, you've cut out a year. The reality is they're much more likely to persist when they get, to, they're much more likely to go to college. So you got them there. They're much more likely to persist when they get there uh, and complete. And our, again, without getting into too much detail, but the way we fund higher education operating budgets through an outcomes-based funding formula, we pay for those things. So we pay to get more students to graduate, more of them to graduate on time, more low-income students to graduate. So all of those things will benefit you uh, in terms of your operating budgets in terms of, and how we fund higher ed. So, you know, we're trying to marry all of these things together, and but the common denominator is really student success. How do we ensure that more students are ready and succeed so that they're prepared for college and for life? So before we ask our last question, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about, you know, where you see the future of higher ed going in Indiana. Where do you see the work of your team, the next commissioner? Where do you see the future of higher ed in Indiana going, you know, post post pandemic and as we move forward? Well, there are lots of ways I could answer, but I will answer it in a singular way. We have to build the value proposition of higher education so that no matter who's hearing that, whether it's an employer hiring someone a student thinking about going, a parent thinking about paying to go, an, an adult talking about coming back, a policymaker who thinks who's mad at higher ed now, and a lot of them are for some reason. They're you know you, they're getting a lot of pushback with some policymakers as well, whether they think it costs too much or whatever. We've got to build the value proposition of higher education in a differentiated way based on who we're talking to, and the new commissioner in partnership with the college presidents and the leaders of the, the you know, colleges and universities, uh, you know, need to communicate that. They, I mean, both 
it's one thing for the commissioner to you know work with policymakers in partnership with colleges and universities, which has always been our those have been our partners. It's another to go out and build that case, you know, through the employer community and community leadership and all of all of the other places. So the communication skills of the commissioner and our college presidents building the value proposition is more important than ever. We can't assume, but let me just give you one example. We used to think we would tell people, you know, you'll make a million dollars more in your life if you get a bachelor's degree. Guess what? That's not working right now. It's true. It is true. I mean, it's indisputably true. But for a lot of people, that delayed gratification of what you will be making throughout your life is not what's moving them to make the decision right now. It, it, you know, it may, for example, with some audiences, but it's not with some, with others. And so that's why this work that we're doing with Box Global to really understand our markets, to message better and build the value proposition of higher education at a time when it's, as I've said repeatedly, more needed than ever. We need to do a better job of making sure people believe us. We want to ask you some fun questions if you're open to it. Sure. I'm not, I'm not a very fun person, but I'll try. Oh, you. <laughs> You're very fun. I, I, you, you talked about what you're reading. I'd love to know kind of what's on your nightstand. What, what books are you, you reading and, you know, professional development or just for, for fun? What, what is it that you're reading? Well, I just finished reading, I made reference to it, The Great Upheaval, which is a book by Arthur Levine and Scott Van Pelt, which talks about higher education's past, present, and uncertain future. Uh, and I think it's, um, it's it's worth reading anybody who's involved in in higher education it's uh, uh it's definitely worth reading i um you know i my i'm, I'm reading right now a book that was that's written by the same author who wrote um uh, something from moscow and it's it's called the lincoln highway and it's it's from about it's set in 1954 and it's about these young people who are traveling the old lincoln highway it's, it's a sort of a historical documentary book in some ways. Um, for just pure fun, you know, I love to read Louise Penny, who writes all these books about um, the, it's set in Canada, sort of like a, it makes you feel good. They have good food, you know, it's kind of like cozy kinds of things. And I've read all of, all of her books as well. So um, I kind of go the, the gamut to, so from, from, you know, really serious to sort of serious to really fun. <laughs> Oh, that's so fun. Thank you for sharing. And I had a question as a woman in higher education, I would love to hear um, from you kind of what is your lead leadership style and what are your guiding kind of principles and mantras as you uh, navigate these spaces? Well, I never anticipated being where I am in this job. So, I mean, I, I never anticipated running for office necessarily, although I started at a very early age. In fact, when I was in high school, uh, I got on the city bus and went down and volunteered, I mean, not volunteered, I, I actually applied for a job in city government. And that sort of started me on that path. It was in final, then final, I came back after I taught high school English for a while for Dick Luger's final, final two years as mayor of Indianapolis before he ran for the United States Senate. So, um, you know, I, I kind of had that pathway. I think as a woman leader, um, you know, I, I think women bring unique skills to, I, I certainly saw it in the General Assembly. I probably doubled down on what I would refer, refer to as the nerdy parts of the job. Um, I, I liked the politics, but for me, the politics were always a vehicle to the 
the policy. I'm a, I'm a policy person really, and I I really I really enjoyed that as well. So I think um, you know when I came to the Senate, for example, I remember it was in I, I was elected in 1992, and uh, you know we still believe it or not. I mean, this goes to show how old I am because people were doing it in other areas, but women didn't wear slacks to the Senate. So you didn't have on you didn't have pants on. And I remember one day Vi Simpson, who was the state senator from Bloomington, Indiana, showed up in what was then called a pantsuit. And we looked around and we thought, well, why did you wear pants? <laughs> no one told us we couldn't. So, um, you know, I think I tried to be, um, I think the thing that has served me the best, and I think this is true for whether you're a man or a woman, is if I could understand where someone lived, what they did, I kind of understood why they thought the way that they did. And even if they didn't vote the way I did, it gave us a place to work together. Um, you know, I think, um, I'm, you know, I think civility and public service is um, critically important. I used to always say, you know, someone who might be not on my side one time may be my best champion another time. So don't make enemies, um, you know, around that place. And then I actually co-founded a program 31 years ago called the Luger Excellence in Public Service Series, which, which is a program designed to prepare women for politics and government and public service, not necessarily running for office. It could be boards or commissions working in other places, but, you know, what we wanted to say was, um, you know, when you step up and part of our, what we do is to encourage people to step up, look around, you could probably do that job as well as somebody else who's doing it. So don't wait until you think someone's going to ask you to do that job, step up and then be prepared. Uh, and so, um, and then, you know, I, for me, I think it's been about having mentors and being a mentor. I'm now at the point in my career where the thing that I like to do most is really work with young women and give them, um, you know, encouragement more than advice, encouragement to sort of find the, you know, find their voice. I was doing a review for someone in my office just yesterday, and I've observed she's been with the commission for a while from that was her first job after college. And I've watched her find her voice you know, where she now sits at a table and comfortably has, feels like she's earned the right to do that. I think women, you know, we tend to not be as confident sometimes. We sort of think, you know, someone has to either ask me or, and there are exceptions to this. This is a generalization, but so finding your voice and knowing that your voice is important. And um, so those are just, you know, some of those apply regardless of your gender, uh, but certainly I would probably have spent more time encouraging women to do it. We don't have enough women, I know, in the General Assembly. I look sometimes there and I see, you know, there are one or two of the women back there. And I think that's not a good representation of our population. I, I think I just want to, to say how much of an inspiration you truly are. And I think that, you know, the ripples and impact that you and the work that you've done and, and your career is is going to to be just outstanding and and for me to to watch you uh, be a you know the leader that you are and the work that you've done in this space is definitely um inspiring and and truly appreciate uh the, this conversation for sure so well thank you i appreciate having the chance to talk with you as you know the mother of two daughters and five granddaughters and one grandson or i just refer to him as the prince um, you know, I, I had a chance to, to do a lot of this work and I both, you know, I, I will share a story sort of in closing and it's both a good news sort of uh, sobering story. You know, I ran for student body president when I was a 
senior in high school. My brother had been student body president the year before. And I lost that race. I didn't run again for another office until I was 40 years old. And I mean, I did lots of other things, but you know, I, I re, when I look back, I won't say that I regret it, but it was um, an unnecessarily, I stepped back, I think, from putting myself out there. And then even when I ran for office the first time, I had, you know, I was not sort of the selected candidate and my daughters were five and seven. And um, I remember coming home after I wasn't picked to be the candidate. And, uh, you know, I sort of decided that I wasn't going to continue to run for the office because I'd lost. And then I concluded that, you know, um, would I rather have them think that, I, would I rather have them see me lose or give up? I decided I would rather them see me lose than give up. Turned out I won and I had 10 more elections after that that I won, so that was a good thing. Um, but, you know, so I guess what I'm saying is, you know, I think you have to believe that you have an offer to make. And then you need to find a way to make that offer. And it's a disservice to all of us if you don't share your talent with others. And so I look forward in this next chapter, whatever that looks like for me, and having more opportunities to encourage people to do that. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. And you've allowed me to just sort of go on and on. And I hope something that I've said has been helpful. Commissioner Lubbers, I think everything you have said so far has been helpful. And I it's truly an honor to be able to speak with you today. And I, I echo the sentiments of my colleagues that you truly have made waves in this state that will they will be felt for generations. So thank you so much for your time today. So many insights that you've shared and I appreciate it. It has been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Career Champions, an initiative of CDPI, the Career Development Professionals of Indiana. Stay connected to CDPI by visiting our website, cdpi.org, where you can register to become a member and explore ways of getting involved. So until next time, thrive career champions.